It's truly delightful to sit down here with you all. And to feel in the space here the the resonance of your practice through your presence here. It's always a curious thing offering some reflections in the November retreat where each of you are finding your own journey and I'm less plugged into the collective or even the individual journeys that I might be when I'm teaching in most other circumstances like this where it's a retreat. Um, So mostly I think I probably end up talking about what I think might be useful that I'd like to talk about rather than necessarily knowing what you might benefit from hearing about. But what I'd like to speak about this morning is the theme of devotion and dedication and what that means for us, what it means to have a way to, in a way, the fo- to focus the, the quality of heart that calls us into our deepening practice. And I remember, and it's kind of curious to me, my early relationship to uh, Buddhist images and devotional practices was quite sort of, hmm, no, I don't think that's something for me at all. And I think I was probably in um, very good company in that many people with a, a modern Western sensibility, a European sort of cultural heritage, which is part of my heritage at least, um, uh, but cautious about it, that whole sort of territory. And when I would first teach retreats, um, so going back some 30 years, I remember if there was a, a Buddha in the meditation hall, I would remove it. It's like, mm, don't need any of that devotional stuff, any of these religious images. And uh, then there was a time when if there was a Buddha in the room, it was fine. And if there wasn't, it was fine. And these days, if there isn't a Buddha in the room, I bring one. And I put it in there. And I enjoy the presence of these images in the different forms that you'll see here at Guy House. There's, and this isn't entirely my responsibility, though I may have been part of a, a shift in culture here where originally there were none and then few and now more than a few perhaps, although a definite conscious intention not to get to the point of many. Though Of course, that's rather subjective. And yet, for some of us at least, and certainly for myself, the journey of my practice has been one of coming to a deeper appreciation of the power and the value, and I would say actually the importance of orienting our devotional capacities in skillful ways, our orienting our devotional inclinations and our natural devotional capacity in a skillful way. So what, what am I talking about when I say devotion? It seems to me it's a quality of heart. It's something that gives rise to our sense of dedication, of our wholeheartedness. When we're devoted, we give first priority to that which we are devoted to. Whatever it might be. We might be devoted to our grandchildren. We might be devoted to the liberation of all beings. But devotion gives the capacity, it seems to me, to 
harness the power of our love into action in support of what we love and in giving ourselves to that. And it gives us an easeful and an, I would say even a joyful foundation for putting aside what is less important, letting go of what is less important, not as a, a sacrifice or a, a sort of great renunciation, but because quite naturally when I'm devoted to something, I want to be there with and engaged in that. And other things, yeah, they might be good or nice or important, but less so. And there's no sense of personal cost in that. And as I said, in a modern Western sort of culture, that's sort of, there's, there's less devotional practice we see in the way that the tradition of insight meditation and various Buddhist lineages that have kind of emerged from more, uh, we could say, traditional Asian cultures, that there's less emphasis and sometimes an active degree of suspicion or even hostility towards things like bowing and chanting and all of that. And wherever we are on that, as far as I'm concerned, it's fine. But the quality of devotion itself is important. Where it goes for us. It might be we're just devoted to the, the truth of this moment. To heck with any images of long dead Buddhas. Yeah, sure. But where the devotion goes is important. And I think it always goes somewhere. So it's really good to see what that is. Our world, of course, is devoted to entertainment, distraction and um, stimulation. We can see that. Everything else, including you know, sanity and possibly survival, seems to be secondary to the devotion to that. It's important that we have some sense of what we are devoted to. It's not that we're supposed to be devoted to something in particular, although we may find that we are, but to be asking ourselves, what, what is it that brings this quality forth in me? And it may be an image, a picture of a beloved teacher, an image of here, Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, and the Buddha, the representation of the, the enlightened human being who was the, the, the founder of this lineage and teaching. And it may be something of beauty. It may be a, something of nature that we have some sense of that devotional quality too. And to see how do we engage with that? How do we use that? In a certain way, I think as a young man, I was devoted to trees. I would find myself wanting to hug them and it would just make me happy. And, and I was willing to, you know, give a lot of my time and energy and care to the, to the well-being of trees. I still am rather in love with them, I would say. In fact, these two images of the Buddha and Kuan Yin are sitting on pieces of a tree that, was, that fell over on the edge of our boundary 15 years ago. And I actually uh, arranged for this to be cut and made and we kept them for five years drying out and we almost destroyed the stage getting them on here. They were so heavy. And for me, they just, even without the image on top, they make me happy. It's like, oh, a really nice piece of a tree that was from here. And... It's sad it had to die and fall over, but when it did, some of it got to stay. And it's like, what is it that gladdens our heart? 
what is it that inspires us and speaks to us of our possibility, of our potential? And traditionally, in this sort of teaching and practice lineage, it's these images of the Buddha and of other enlightened, awakened and inspiring beings who we direct that towards or who we may choose to direct that quality towards. And I, I remember just in, in the time when I, was, I think I was still finding my relationship with all of this world, I was asked, because I was, I was going to teach a retreat in India, I was asked if I would buy a Tara image for Gaia House while I was there. And I spent ages just looking at all these images, trying to see which one. If you've ever looked at galleries of images in India or anywhere else, there's so many. Which one? Which one? And, you know, I sort of went with this idea of a cross-legged image of Tara, who is a, uh, an image sort of primarily from the, the, the later Mahayana Buddhist tradition, but a very uh, full-bodied feminine expression of awakening. And... In the end, the one I, I came onto, I was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure I can do this because this Tara that I think I have decided is the right one is standing up and partially unclothed by Western perceptions. And maybe that will be complicated. But it was like, this is the one. And so, you know, there was this process of forming a relationship with what was otherwise, and in my mind, not so many years before, just inanimate material. And yet there's something more to it. And, and I, at the same time, bought a smaller, seated Tara, which I gave to my wife. And I was so touched to see how powerful it was for her, 20 years ago or so, to have an image of an enlightened being expressed in a feminine form, as Tara very clearly is. And it was just so, so touching for me to see that to get what that might be if one hadn't had that already. And the, the image of, of Kuan Yin, also very beautiful. Kuan Yin appears as Kuan Yin, which is, and Kuan Yin is often associated with a feminine embodiment, but the very same being is also manifest as Avalokiteshvara, the also embodiment of compassion in a more masculine Appearance, And in a certain way, it seems to me, actually Kuan Yin is a non-binary awakened being. And that, that there's something about what's represented in it, what's possible for us, irrespective of, in this case, our gender identity. And in another place, of course... Um, I haven't been for a few years, but when I've taught in Israel over the years, there's a very strong cultural thing. You do not bow down or have any kind of images that you devote yourself to. So flowers would be placed on the altar. And then flowers, beautiful. The flowering of life, the beauty and the, the fruitfulness. One can find different ways to engage with this, it seems to me. And so, as I said, it's not important that we are devoted to something particular or some image or, or form of that, but to look and see where does that quality in my heart go? Because spiritual practice is concerned with what is most important to us as human beings. 
And because of that, it evokes in us very powerful responses, strong responses, beautiful responses, but responses we need to be aware of. Because one of the things that we see, and many of us will be perhaps acutely aware of, is the dangers or the risks where devotion to a practice, a person, a teaching, a community, a tradition, or an object is both powerful, but also not without risks. And we may have had the experience of blind devotion being asked of us by a teacher. We were said, we're told, we must be so devoted we do not question. We give up or abandon our faculty of critical assessment of what's actually happening. And this can sometimes be harmful, unhelpful, unwholesome. We, we need a certain wisdom based in our, our growing life experience and understanding so that our devotion is based in something that is not just blind faith, we could say. There's a quality of surrender often that comes with devotion. The sense of questioning authority is important, yes, but at the same time, there's something about giving away our own preferences, giving away our own views. Sometimes we kind of devote ourselves to the schedule of practice, and we didn't make it up, somebody else made it up. And if you go to another retreat or another retreat center, they make it up differently. Every retreat I teach, I sit down and make it up again according to what I think will be most useful for the group, who's coming, the length of time, the place it is, the time of year. It's just made up. But then we sort of devote ourselves to it. We say, this is what we'll follow now. And there's something very powerful in that. Devoting ourselves and yet being aware of the need to actually also maintain a certain critical faculty of, is this wholesome is this contributive is this leading onwards in some way in my path in my journey and I remember before I'd ever done any meditation when I was first in Asia the, the, the literally first Buddhist teachings I encountered were a Tibetan Lama sitting down and um, he was teaching on the 50 yogas of guru devotion all the foundations and framework for committing oneself to one's teacher and I, I sat through the first two hours. It went on for two days. I didn't hear all 50 of them. I heard the first three or four, and that wasn't where my path led at that point. But I remember thinking, wow, that's a lot of commitment being asked. And so this is something we might be hesitant with in relationship to devoting ourselves to a teacher or a tradition. I later heard that within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the suggestion is that you should study your teacher for 12 years before you take them as your guru. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. If you've studied them for 12 years and you're confident on that basis in their wisdom and maturity, then maybe one might give oneself completely, unreservedly, and without hesitation. So, so the question of where is the devotion here? What is it? We might be devoted to the here and now. We might be devoted to peace, to kindness, to truth, to freedom, to this moment. And to see what it is to hold nothing back from that. <laughs>
What is it to devote ourselves to this? In some ways, insight meditation could be summarized as the practice of devoting ourselves to the present moment and letting go. Of course, one could say a lot more about what that is, but that's essentially the heart of it. Be here now and open or let go. Devotion also has this quality of giving ourselves to something more important or greater than ourselves. It takes us beyond the sometimes narrow or constricted frame of my interest, my need, my want. And, you know, classically we might you know, hear of someone devoted to their children, to the welfare of the poor. To fighting for, for justice and equality. These kinds of devotion, this giving of ourself. And here on retreat, you know, you're invited to give yourself to this. I've been here now eight days, is it? Seven, eight, nine, something like that. It's not to say that there aren't still ripples of the world in our lives will be moving in the heart and the mind, but plenty of time to land not that that's somehow finished but well enough and so one of the things we can consider is cancelling all the Vipassana holidays which is all the times where we think "Hmm, I've done enough I'll have a break now I'll kick back and not really pay attention for the next little while they might just be little places and little times in the day but notice where they are I don't really need to be present here. Not saying you have to somehow be striving in some forced kind of attentiveness to every single thing in minute detail. But what is it to really say, I want to fill, I want to enter into, I want to give myself to the fullness, the wholeness and the completeness of this day equally as this moment. And to notice that there can also be a kind of a stagnation that happens when we're, we're kind of just going through the motions. We sort of, maybe we've got some sort of sense of this is what I have to do. I do this, I do this. It's this technique or I just follow this schedule or I just do it this way. And then we're kind of somehow waiting for something to happen as if some external agency will be the source of that. Now, of course, it's entirely appropriate to be practicing as one mode that one could have just of not trying to get somewhere, but at the same time to notice where we might somehow just start to hold back from that full engagement, where it's like we've somehow almost passed the responsibility away from ourselves to something else, to the practice, to the Dharma, to the whatever it might be. And it's like we need to stay engaged there. It's not that we claim it's all me and I'm going to make it happen now. No, that's not it either. We know that. But nor does it happen without us. Without our staying alive in that way, engaged in that way. And we can see that there's a a danger when we're devoted 
or the appearance of devotion is arising out of a sense of wanting to get something or get somewhere. And we can sometimes see in practice and it's so important and of course it happens it's nothing to judge or be concerned about but to be noticed to be seen clearly when at some level there's a, a kind of a wanting to attain experience whether lofty and sublime and beautiful and transformative or not it still can easily lead to a kind of a lack of attentiveness and sensitivity to whether what's taking place is truly beneficial and wholesome or otherwise <coughs> and you know we see the classic expression of this in a devotion to a guru where actually or a teacher where actually something unskillful is taking place but somehow one can't see it because of the devotion to where this is going to go or what this is going to give me and it's often to do with that sense of having somehow identified with what one will get from this if one stays with it that makes it then hard to see what it is costing one or what it is costing one's community or one's world. We might be attached to the idea of stillness and disregard the signals of our body that say it's time to move now. We might be attached to comfort, devoted to comfort and unwilling to sit with what is not easy to bear. So we can't tell what's going on just by looking at the outside. We have to be asking, where is my response coming from? What is informing the choice I'm making here? Is it contributing to the journey, to the development of this path and my journey on it? And so... Again, the authentic expression of devotion is this, it kind of comes as a wish to give something, as a wish to offer something. And, you know, this response of our heart to what we recognize as important comes with a sense of generousness. I wish to give, to give my time, my energy, my care, maybe to give a literal gift, some form of offering. And it's an expression of, of love that is also imbued with respect the sense of honoring something and you know we talk about in the tradition paying respects Anjali making Anjali and in the tradition that I've been most connected with, with in terms of more traditional monastic communities of the Thai forest tradition and the, uh, the communities connected with that in the UK as well as Asia that the hands coming together in front of the heart. So all sorts of different ways we can put our hands together. We can point them up, we can point them out, we can not do it at all. But the sense of bringing one's hands together in front of the heart. And I find it very touching to do this. It's the sense of, huh, what is it to bring these two different sides together, whatever they might represent, and to place them here in front of this resonant, sensitive part of the human body, my human body, we call the heart. And something of paying respect to life, to the miracle, to the beauty. Paying, expressing that respect through attention, through interest, through care. And respect isn't something that puts another above 
or ourselves below in some kind of um, hierarchical way. True devotion, to my mind, doesn't create a hierarchy. It's not about elevating or putting down because it, it doesn't actually create, it's not based on somehow trying to make a separation from or with that one is devoted to, but actually on recognizing our connection with, our non-separation from that which we are devoted to. And so again, the question, what is it that you may be devoted to? What are you devoted to? And the teacher I learned the most about this important theme from Ajahn Suchito, the, as he was then um, abbot of uh, one of the monasteries in, in the UK, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, in the Chittavas Buddhist Monastery, Chittavaveka, which means the, say the secluded heart. And uh, I first met him in India when he was on a long tudong about 30 years ago. And I met him just after he had been attacked by bandits. Him and his companion who were walking for months as mendicants, so dependent on generosity and receiving alms. And they were attacked by bandits. And of course they had nothing to give the bandits because they were travelling with no possessions and just living on the generosity of the community. And he tells the story, and he told the story. You can listen to it. It's called a talk called The Last Puja, of that, which includes devotional practice, but also this encounter where he, um, the, the, the bandit actually had a machete raised to him, and he describes, he says, this guy was really losing it and dangerous and scary, and I didn't know what to do. So I just took a devotional pose. I just bowed and bent my head forward and offered my head. It's the only thing I could offer at that time as an offering. And it's like, whew, okay, that's quite an offering. Um, but he said, and then it actually started to cool down. The charge and the situation reduced. And that sense of someone who had trained so much in offering, in, in devotion, that they could sense that what was needed in a situation there was to offer their head. And he said, and well, yeah, so maybe I've had the life I was supposed to. You know, he knew there was a risk in it. Anyway, it was his, his story, but it really touched me. And uh, having practiced with him over the years and really appreciated, enjoyed that, that the sense of just bowing to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that is a, a core practice within that community and many Buddhist, traditional Buddhist communities and that sense of just taking the time to reflect on gratitude and appreciation for the goodness that has come to me, to my life and to my world through the practice of the Buddha through the awakening of the Buddha through the teachings of the Buddha which the, the Dharma and through the community of followers of those teachings, followers of the Buddha, the Sangha, and the, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, the sense of when I give a talk, I like to take a moment to sit down and just connect with 
the Buddha. This human being who walked on the earth, who had their struggles and difficulties for sure, but offered something so precious that I can't imagine what my life would have been if I hadn't received this gift, encountered these teachings, been supported to practice as I was and have and I am. And there's a sense of also kind of also acknowledging that whatever might come here when I'm sitting on this cushion, it's, it's not mine. It might come through me. It will be shaped by my own confusions and hopefully informed by some of my understandings. But it's not mine. It, these teachings belong to, to something greater than that. And uh, it's, it's funny, but I, I always kind of just want to put on something that's reasonably tidy when I turn up. I have a shave this morning, partly because it's just, it's strange, isn't it? But it's like, if I'm going to sit in front of the Buddha and speak or teach and try and articulate something of my understanding of the Dharma, then, then there's some way of wanting to respect that, wanting to honor that. And one of the one of the phrases is, you know, just acknowledge in the, in the sort of the devotion that the, the, the practice that I learn is that just saying, you know, to be grateful that the Buddha had the compassion to teach after his awakening. And you probably know the story um, that you know after the Buddha's awakening, he thought probably something to paraphrase. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, but then he thought, hmm, I should tell people about this. But then he thought. <laughs> They won't get it. It's really subtle. And if they don't get it, that'll be really annoying. So I don't think I'll bother. That was his basic thought process as articulated. Translated, obviously, into a modern vernacular. And the story is that then um, a, uh, a Brahma Sahampati, so we could say a, uh, a deity of that particular cosmological sort of framework, or a uh, awakening of compassion in the Buddha arose and said, hey, you know, some people will get it if you teach the Dharma. There are those with little dust in front of their eyes who will understand. And the Buddha, recognizing this, said, yeah, okay, some will get it. And it's always, for me, it's beautiful also because it's the humanness of the person. It's like, here am I, he, here was the he, fully awakened. Amazing journey he'd been through. So tough, some of that. And then, when he thinks about teaching other people, it's going to be a, a pain because they don't, won't get it, so I won't bother. It's like, wow, there's something very human in that story too, isn't there? You know, oh, I'll just take it easy, sit peacefully under a tree. Oh, no, actually it might be good for human beings if I teach. All right, I'll do it. And there's something beautiful and also noble and yet so, so relatable, it seems to me, in that Buddha. And that's part of what I would like and choose to bow down to. To the humanness that is not removed from the awakened. A student, uh, it was a few years ago I guess, not so many, asked me once if, if it was okay to love one's teacher and if I had loved my teachers and my response to the student was very clear. It's like, wow. When I think of, for instance, Manindra, my first teacher, well, he wasn't actually literally first, but the first teacher I 
got close with in India. It's like, I loved Manindra. I loved, did I mention him the other day? No, I didn't. I, I gave, okay, maybe I did or I didn't. I gave a retreat here just a week before, or a few days before this started. I don't remember what I said then and what I've said here already, so excuse me. But I had this amazing experience with meeting this, um, this teacher and that I'd, I'd just done my first retreat in India with some Western teachers and I was then going from where I was, Budgaya, where I'd done the retreat, to Calcutta, where my grandmother lived. And I'd never met her before. I was in my mid-twenties. She's Bengali. I'm one quarter Indian. And I'd never had any contact with this part of my family or my heritage. So I went to Calcutta. And on the way there, I saw that, or before I left, I saw that there was a, a teacher advertised or listed as a teacher in Calcutta. Didn't know anything about this teacher. Name was Manindra. There was an address. And so I went there and said, is Manindra here? It's the Mahabodhi temple in, in Calcutta. Um, it's an organization, a sort of Buddhist organization. I said, no, he's not here. Do you know where he is? No. Do you know when he's coming back? No. It's like, okay. <laughs> he's a free spirit. He always was. He didn't really tell anyone what he was doing till he did it often. But I found another, so I went on another retreat. And I went to this retreat with a different teacher. Um, and there was the retreat. There was mostly, um, you know, people from the locality. There were just two or three Europeans out of about 50. And the teacher was there. And there was this person sitting in white nearby during the whole retreat. Hmm. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He just meditated, as far as I could see. And... Um, at the end of the retreat, this person in white came up to me and he, he reached out with a card and he said, come and see me. And if I'm honest, my first response was, why do I want to go and see you? I didn't say that, fortunately, because I looked at the card and it said, Manindra. And somehow, having gone looking for him and not found him, he'd found me. And it was the beginning of what was for me an incredibly beautiful relationship. He was a human being as well, I have to say, as all of my teachers have been. But I loved him. I really did. And what I said to my student when they asked, is it okay to love your teacher? I said, yes. If it's okay if you understand that your teacher is also a fallible human being. And sometimes they may need your help to see that. This is a responsibility we have as students. It's one of the less easy ones. But as part of what, to my mind, is an expression of devotion, is also to speak to each other in our community when we see something that needs attention amongst our peers or in relationship to our teachers. And I'm reminded of the words of Arnie Mandel in one of his earlier books, Sitting in the Fire, he's a, he's a process, he, he teaches amazing form of work, shall we say. It's clearly spiritually informed, but it's not Buddhist per se. And he, he, he said, he, he told the story about how um, he once went to see his teacher with something that his teacher, to speak about something that was happening that was problematic and harmful that his teacher was doing, expecting his teacher would go, oh, gosh, I see, yeah. But that's not what happened. The teacher said, what? No, that's not happening. And he walked away shocked because he loved this teacher and he respected this teacher deeply. 
and he wrote that he reflected on it and he said and so I and I found this profound and beautiful he said and I realized through thinking about reflecting on this that one day my students may come to me and say look there's something you're doing or you're not seeing and I won't be able to see it but I need to listen anyway And so together with this sense of what I would call devotion and the willingness to love those who we might see as our teachers, whoever they might be, we also, again, we don't, make our, we don't disappear. Our, our own human wisdom is still needs to be in the relationship and offered as a, as a kindness ultimately also. You know, the Buddha, if the Buddha, and it only happened I think a few times, but occasionally the Buddha described essentially what, what the phrase he used translates as killing the student now obviously first precept he's not going to kill any students literally um, but what it meant was stopping to offer instruction and stopping offering um, feedback about what may be inappropriate in the person's behavior or practice and it's like, oh, that's actually one of the most important gifts and offerings is that we can offer guidance or instruction, but we also offer feedback to each other. And to me, this is part of being devoted. It's not something that goes away because we are devoted. It's precisely because of the love of what is most important that we seek to s support it and also protect it. Understanding that no human being, not ourselves, not each other, not our teachers, can see everything all the time. And the devotion also to the Sangha, to the community, not just the teacher, whether the Buddha, Kuan Yin, or our particular teachers or teacher, but to the community. And here on the retreat, this sense of um, the phrase, the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. I really love that. The blessed one's disciples who have practiced well is the phrase. And it, it's sort of, so it's not the, the, the blessed one's disciples who have the right uniform or the blessed one's disciples who look good on a cushion. Um, it's the ones who have practiced well, who have given themselves deeply to practice that has borne fruit. And that sense of the, the carrying of this teaching of practice and of, and of sort of, um, in a way, the container of, of guidelines for behavior that we call the Vinaya, the ethical frameworks, has been carried for generations by ordained people and by lay people. And um, I did mention, I'm pretty sure the other day when I was speaking, Deepama, the... Uh, the student who had the psychic powers. She was a layperson. Not ordained. And there's something again there about really seeing how we easily and often frame in a certain way our orientation towards a certain group or category within that we are traditionally asked to devote ourselves to. This might cause some hesitation. But to be devoted equally to those beings of whom this retreat is an expression very much of sangha of community and to be devoted to this community of of practitioners also
something worthy of honor in each of us and all of us. It's something we can bow to. And as I said, there's that, first of all, this acknowledging of what we honor, where devotion expresses itself in the sense of the love of and the wish to give to. And then there's actually the sense of making offerings. It's incredibly powerful. So sometimes just, you know, as we might, light a candle or offer a flower or just an expression of one's body of maybe bowing down in some way or form. It gives amazing uplift to the heart. It's actually a real happiness-making practice to consciously turn towards what we're devoted to and allow that to rest in our heart and allow our body in some way or form to express it. And with, with the Buddha, with, with coming and the practice of bowing, which I've spent at times considerable amount of kind of care and just saying, so what is it in this? Something that I had no resonance for when I first entered into the world of practice and more than no resonance. I had some active sort of skepticism, resistance, disinclination. And doing it over the years, I found it quite amazing and mysterious. One aspect of the practice is not just bowing down, but that, as I said, that offering, and in a sense, <coughs> offering the fruit of my practice to the Buddha. <coughs> Giving it up. In a way, offering it to something that's more than myself. That the fruit of my practice is not my own. And, and that I, in a way, owe it. In a certain way, to the Buddha. In the same way we could say, I owe my life to my parents. I couldn't be here without it. My practice wouldn't have happened without the Buddha. It's not that my parents are responsible for all of my life or the Buddha shaped everything of my life. No. But something of that, absolutely. And so there's a sense of just offering that and bowing down that I like to do. And particularly when there's richness and fruit and juice or aliveness, joy in the practice, it seems so natural just to want to bow down and just, in a way, sense, not just mine, not just for me. And what I've found, which is really amazing, and I didn't expect this at all, that having established that as a practice and over the years done it regularly, whether or not I felt like I was enjoying the fruits of my practice or in the richness and aliveness of it, because sometimes it doesn't feel that way, what I started to realize that when I did that over time, that it was sort of like banking. Like I'm like I'm depositing the goodness, the merit, the beauty, the blessedness of my practice in this location. Rather than trying to keep it as mine, I'm banking it. And then when I'd go and I'd bow down and I was feeling like I was struggling or I was confused or I was exhausted or I was distressed, it was sort of like, oh, it came back. It kind of like I got a withdrawal. So, oh, oh, wow, you can actually bank this stuff and then you can withdraw it when you need it. I mean, that's a little bit simplistic to say it that way, but, but it actually happens that way. That's been my experience and not just mine. So, ah, oh, where I, in a way, allow what is blessed to be held by something larger than myself, so not just for me, it's still there for me when I come back to it. And so that's part of also when I bow down in front of the Buddha, I often feel like I get 
Even if, as today, you know, I haven't, I haven't sat this morning. I've been actually involved with things that are rather busy and charged in ways that wouldn't be optimal pr preparation for coming and giving a talk to a group of people who are, um, who are sort of in, in quiet and seclusion and sustained practice for days. But something about just bowing down and just, oh, okay, yeah, just opening myself to receive. And actually making the action physical as part of it, I find. Hands together in front of the heart and connecting. And putting the head down on the ground. It's like getting this thing, which is so often trying to lead and run the show, and just putting it on the earth. It's like it gets to discharge some of the frenzied activity that sometimes goes on here. And there's also, it expresses, it's like there's a humility in it. Putting our head down on the ground. Touching the earth with it. There's a, there's a, a humbleness in that posture that helps us with releasing conceit and the sense of me and mine that sometimes gathers around and starts to form a sort of an accretion around our practice, unseen perhaps. And, you know, conceit is one of the last of the fetters to go. So it's a good one. Anything that helps us with that sense of... Because it's not conceit, I'm great necessarily. Conceit is equally, I'm better than, I'm worse than, or... Interestingly, I'm equal to another. All of those are expressions of conceit as the Buddha understood it. And what it's specifically, it's the conceit of one's I amness, the sense of self-existence that's expressed in the comparative of better than, less than, equal to. It's the implied sense of separate self that's in that. That's the conceit, conceit I am ultimately. And so a practice that helps us release conceit is an important one. And again, this posture is one we can do in meditation. We don't actually have to come up to the front of the hall and do something in relationship to a Buddha image or go out to a tree and plant our head at its base we might feel moved to but that kind of inner movement of, of bowing down understanding that this doesn't mean and humility doesn't mean that we let go of our self-respect or our discernment of what is wholesome but nonetheless we understand the power of giving ourselves giving our life in fact to what it is we most love. And this is the manifestation of devotion. So we might dedicate offerings to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, to life, to beauty, to truth, to whatever it is that calls our hearts. To the, and to dedicate our life to the welfare, the flourishing, the thriving of life the awakening of all beings and of all that lives. And this, to me, seems central to what we're engaged in here. Sometimes when the body is aching, the mind is either weary or frantic, or both, sometimes just bowing down, just letting the body lead the practice, putting one's head on the earth 
or one's hands or one's heart or however it works for you and just allowing yourself to remember your connection to what is more than just this but of course not separate from just this a friend of mine she uh, a friend in New Zealand where I come from she translated once I thought rather lovely as an expression for Buddha Dharma Sangha that we could talk about awakening truth together is what those three words mean and that also evokes uh, an aspiration and a, a framework and we could even say a plan awakening truth together Buddha Dharma Sangha and as an aspiration as a a basis for our dedication of our lives. I think there are probably not so many others that I would choose or imagine to be more important. And so I offer these reflections on my own journey with and sense of the practice and the place of devotion and I hope this is something that may inspire you to explore or even just reflect on its place in your journey and practice. Let's sit for a few moments together. May we all in our practice here and in our lives come to know and see what it is that is worthy of devotion, what it is that we wish and choose to dedicate our lives and our practice to. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.